the most accomplished AI researchers in human history can disagree on the path forward. And they often do. And that's healthy. I like the fact that we don't all have this echo chamber of like, this is exactly how it needs to happen. Welcome to the Marketing AI Show, the podcast that helps your business grow smarter by making artificial intelligence approachable and actionable. You'll hear from top authors, entrepreneurs, researchers, and executives as they share case studies, strategies, and technologies that have the power to transform your business and your career. My name is Paul Reitzer. I'm the founder of Marketing AI Institute, and I'm your host. Welcome to episode 42 of the Marketing AI Show. I'm your host, Paul Reitzer, along with my co-host, Mike Kaput, who is the Chief Content Officer at Marketing AI Institute, where I am the CEO. And we co-authored the book, Marketing Artificial Intelligence, AI Marketing in the Future of Business. And prior to that, we spent 10 years together at my agency. Is that, how long were, you, were we there? Right around, right around 10 years, yeah. Yeah, for anybody who doesn't know my background, I owned a marketing agency prior to my life running the AI Institute. It was simultaneous for a time time of my yeah. life, but <laughs> I sold the agency in 2021 and all of our energy is focused on bringing you the latest information and education and events around artificial intelligence. All right. So today's episode uh, is brought to us by Brand Ops. Uh, thank you to Brand Ops for supporting the show. Brand Ops is built to optimize your marketing strategy, delivering the most complete view of marketing performance, allowing you to compare results to competitors and benchmarks. Leaders use it to know which messages and activities will most effectively improve results. Brand Ops also, Brand Ops also improves your generative marketing. With Brand Ops, your content is more original, relevant to your audience, and connected to your business. Find out more and get a special listener offer. Visit brandops.io slash marketing AI show. That's brandops.io forward slash marketing AI show. And the 42nd episode is also brought to us by the fourth annual marketing AI conference or Maycon. Mycon, I hear it said a lot. We use Maycon. You can call it whatever you want. Um, but the Marketing AI Conference returns to Cleveland this summer at the Convention Center right across from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the beautiful Lake Erie, uh, July 26th to the 28th. Uh, the conference brings together hundreds of professionals, maybe thousands, depending on how many listeners want to come join us in Cleveland, to explore AI and marketing, uh, experience AI technologies, and engage with other forward-thinking next-gen marketers and business leaders. You will leave Macon prepared for the next phase of your AI journey with a clear vision and a near-term strategy you can implement immediately. Plus, you'll get to hang out with me and Mike. Maybe we'll do like a podcast listener happy hour. I'm going to need some drinks by July. <laughs> All right. But prices increase April 14th, which is uh, this Friday. So uh, save $400 on any pass by getting your Macon passes today. It is Macon. That's M-A-I-C-O-N dot ai all right mike three topics let's roll all right thanks paul first up we're going to dive into a new announcement from meta the parent company of facebook because they just announced what it they are calling the segment anything model or sam for short this is a model that can essentially identify objects in an image so even when it hasn't been trained on a specific object it's seeing this Sam is able to actually identify what the object is and the constituent pieces of it. 
So this is really important. We're not going to get super technical, but it's extremely important because this process of identifying objects and images is called something called segmentation. So hence that name, segment anything. This matters even if you're not, you know, a data scientist, engineer, or technical type, because segmentation has to be done in order for computer vision systems to do what they do. Up until now, though, it, doing that took a ton of time and money and custom training. But now using something like SAM, you can simply click on objects to segment all the pieces of them and understand what's in the image. You can even just write a text prompt to tell the model what objects you'd like to identify. So an example they gave was just type in cat and it'll identify all the cats in a photo. Now, historically doing that has taken a lot more time and energy and money to do. Now, this has some wide-ranging applications across different industries. So Meta gives some examples of what this model might be able to do in the near future. So, for instance, you could see it incorporated into augmented reality glasses. So using AR glasses, something like Sam could instantly identify objects that you're looking at and prompt you with reminders and instructions related to them. For marketing and business specifically, there was an article in Gizmodo that called the demo of Sam a, quote, Photoshop magic wand tool on steroids. One of the reporters at Gizmodo actually used it to do really sophisticated image editing on the fly with ease just by pointing and clicking to remove and adjust an image. Now, that's just kind of scratching the surface here because right now the model is only available for non-commercial testing. But given the use cases, you can start to see there are many, many possible ways we might start seeing this really advanced computer vision model be incorporated into Meta's platforms as a creative aid. So, Paul, when you saw this announcement, what were your initial thoughts here? A few things come to mind. One, uh, I think people, a lot of people don't realize Meta has a major AI research lab. People who aren't in the AI space sometimes forget that or didn't know that Meta is a major player in this space, led by Jan LeCun, a Turing award-winning AI researcher and one of kind of the, the fathers of modern AI. And so I think it's a good reminder. Any, any regular listeners to our show uh, would recall us maybe talking about Cicero from Meta AI, uh, which is a, a really cool um, kind of research model, research paper and model. So I think one is just a reminder that Meta is doing some really interesting things in AI. Um, two, I think the, the first thing that jumped to me is the openness of this. So that is again, something that was key to Jan LeCun going to fa with Facebook back in like 2013 or whenever it started the, the Facebook AI research lab. Um, he wanted to work for an organization that, uh, adhered to open research principles that shared everything they were creating. Now. Again, if you're a regular listener paying attention to the space, there is a battle right now between open and closed. And some of the more traditionally open labs like OpenAI are becoming very closed. And Jan LeCun is continuing to push for the openness and the sharing of this. So with this openness, it appears um, that the major breakthroughs here are one, the foundational model. So the ability for people to build on top of this model and two, the openness of the data set. So they said specifically the segmentation data needed to train such a model is not readily available online or elsewhere. 
unlike images, videos, and text, which are abundant on the internet. So if we think about how a language model like GPT-4 learns, it just goes and consumes a bunch of text data. Think about uh, stable diffusion or mid-journey, they go and consume a bunch of images. If you think about the need to be able to recognize objects with images, that doesn't exist. And so they're basically building this data set and making it available. So to me, the big takeaway is this could likely lead to a uh, an explosion in terms of computer vision applications and companies. So people who previously could not build this kind of stuff because it required tons of expertise and data they didn't have, they're making it open to be able to access this stuff and build on it. Whether you know you can envision advertising applications, brand, brand monitoring applications, um, product development, like oh, there's all these ways you could probably think about using this technology. But prior to this, it was going to be a lot harder to build stuff. And so it seems like this is a really important moment for people who want to build around objects and segmentation. And I know they say that they can't currently extract from video. It can extract from stills of videos, but it can't extract from like the moving video itself. But the way they word it sure makes it sound like this can be applied to video over time, like the same kind of approach will be able to be applied to extracting objects and you know masking them within videos. So it just seems like it's going to open a whole new realm of innovation. And anytime that some major paper or model comes out of meta, it's usually worth paying attention to as sort of a, a prelude of other things that might come from it. Gotcha. Yeah, it seems like it's about to be a very, very exciting time in computer vision. So what is not as exciting for some of the AI companies out there, uh, notably OpenAI, are regulatory woes. So we talked last week about OpenAI's problems in Italy. Namely, Italy put into effect a full ban on ChatGPT in the country. That's unfortunately for OpenAI just the beginning. A new article from Wired breaks down why and how Italy's ban could actually spur wider regulatory action across the European Union and actually could call into question the overall legality of AI tools in, e in the EU as a whole. Now, when banning ChatGPT, Italy's data regulator ended up citing several major problems they had with the tool. But fundamentally, their reasoning for the ban hinged on our good friend GDPR, the European Union's wide-ranging general data protection regulation privacy law. Under GDPR, there are six ways you can legally collect data from EU citizens, of which are 400 million of them. These range from things like someone giving you permission to use their data to having data collection be part of a legal contract that you enter into with someone. So there's these six ways that you're legally allowed to get someone's data. Now, here's the issue. OpenAI has collected personal data from EU citizens to train ChatGPT and its underlying models. So Wired actually interviewed several regulatory experts who said, look, there's only two ways that OpenAI could have gotten this data legally under EU's law, EU laws as they are today. The first would be if they had gotten consent from each user that they trained the model on, which we know they did not. The second would be arguing they have, quote, legitimate interests to use each user's data in training their models. Now, the experts cited say that that second argument is going to be extremely difficult for OpenAI to prove to EU regulators. And Wired actually interviewed Italy's data regulator who created the ban, and they said already 
this type of defense is, quote, inadequate. So this really matters outside of Italy because all EU countries are bound by GDPR. And the article has cited that data regulators in France, Germany, and Ireland have already gotten in touch with Italy's regulator to get more info on what they did and their findings. Norway's data protection director even said that if a model is built on data unlawfully collected, it raises questions about whether anyone can even use the tools legally that were built on top of those models. So this isn't just an open AI problem anymore. Plenty of other major AI companies likely have trained models in ways that could be problematic. So first up, Paul, I want to ask, do you expect to see additional regulatory action coming from actions like that are the ones happening in the EU? I'm no expert in European law and GDPR in, in, in particular, but it sure sounds like this is a mounting problem in Europe. And the thing we've always been guided on previously was to look at, you know, the AI Act in Europe, the efforts to build that, look at GDPR, and just assume those same level of regulations, restrictions would, would be arriving in the U.S. Um, you know, shortly after they, they are enacted in Europe. And so you, you start to wonder, you know, what, are the, what is the fallout to this? So it does certainly appear that there is a domino effect starting to happen where Italy comes first and then others potentially follow. So I think you have to be paying close attention to that. Now, obviously, we're talking about open AI here. They're not the only player. It's not the only language model company. It's not the only application that you can use. So I immediately start thinking about, well, what's the impact of the other applications in, in the ecosystem that are built on top of these language models? And again, not just, um, you know, GPT-4 and GPT-3 and OpenAI's models. And so if you're a user of one of these AI writing tools that's using these technologies and you're in Europe, is this going to immediately affect you in the near term? Um, so that's, that's one thought I have is just, it seems like it's a domino effect and it seems like it could go beyond just open AI into other areas. You then start wondering about the same issues related to any generative AI technology in Europe. And then again, kind of coming to the U S, uh, whether it's images or videos or anywhere where they, it, there's, you call into question the training data basically. So I think as we've said before, the big question is there's a lot of uncertainty about this. And so if you're, especially if you're at a bigger enterprise where you can't take like big risks on this stuff, if you're a small business or a startup, you're probably way more willing to, you know, roll the dice and take some chances on these things and see how it plays out. But if you're a bigger enterprise, a CIO, CEO, or, you know, somewhere that's making recommendations to the C-suite about the integration of these technologies, I, I, I think our whole position here is you got to at least be paying attention. Um, and again, like we've talked about, like at some point, we'll probably need to start bringing in some guests. Like you and I riffing on some of this stuff is helpful to a point for people to surface it for them. When we start getting into these really technical issues and legal issues, it's not our domain to provide guidance to people about what you should do about this. It's our feeling that giving you a point of view that you need to be thinking about this and talking to the right people is kind of our role here. And so I feel like this, especially for our European listeners, I, it's right at your doorstep. Like you got to be paying attention now for the U S you know, the question becomes, is this something that we should be thinking about? Like Sam Altman, we know has been meeting in, in Washington, um, with legislators and, you know, is part of the concern here that they have concerns around the training data. Now, 
there's some other thoughts I have around the U.S. and whether or not they would follow suit. My my instinct is they're not going to. Um, again, this is totally uh, no inside sources, but the U.S. has every motivation in the world for U.S.-based companies to be leading the world in the development of these technologies. And so there's very minimal reward to the U.S. government to slow down this innovation. Now, they want it to be done safely but they also want access to this level of technology. And we know just this past week, President Biden was convening his science and technology group to talk about artificial intelligence. So this is like, this is in the Oval Office stuff. Like they're, they are actively looking at AI. And so I just, I think there's all these um, kind of competing interests around whether or not this is good or bad and whether or not we should be slowing this stuff down, going back to the conversation last week about the Future of Life Institute letter. And I think my general takeaway in the U.S. at least is there, there's no real slowing this down. I think it's full speed ahead for this stuff. I think there are legal issues around the training data. I think they'll be resolved in somehow um, through court cases, through settlements, through something. But it's it's certainly worth keeping an eye on. And again, if you're in Europe, real close eye on because you may not have access not only to ChatGPT but all other generative AI technologies if if this goes through. That's a really good point. And you know, related to this topic, you can also see OpenAI making some moves of their own because at the same time they just published what they're calling quote our approach to AI safety, which is an article outlining specific steps that the company is taking or considering taking to making its systems safer, more aligned, and more responsibly developed. And I found it probably not a coincidence that many of the steps were directly related to the problems that Italy's regulators raised when they banned it. So we're talking about things like they list out that they have delayed the general release of systems like GPT-4 to make sure they're safe before they're widely, widely accessible. They're protecting children, which was specifically called out in Italy's ban um, by requiring people to either be 18 or older or 13 or older with parental approval to use AI tools. They're also looking into, they say, options to verify users, though they don't specify what that looks like. They are saying that they are respecting privacy by not using the data that they collect to sell their services, advertise, or profile users. They also say they work to remove personal information from models where possible. And then last but not least, they say that they are making huge strides towards improving the factual accuracy of things like ChatGPT. So they say GPT-4, the underlying model, is 40% more likely to produce factual content than the previous model, GPT 3.5. So seems pretty obvious why they are publishing these things. Now, what was your take on seeing their approach? Did it give you any degree of confidence that they're developing AI responsibly that you didn't have before? No, I mean, listen, like, like we know that they get that this is a major focus. We. You know, I think that you can question OpenAI's overall motivations and their, you know, path to AGI and whether or not what they're doing is in the best interest of humanity. But I, I do believe that at their core, they have a lot of really good people working at the organization that know the dangers of what they're building. And they're, they're trying within a competitive landscape to build in the right security and safety precautions. Now, 
is it enough? I have no idea, but they're certainly making the effort. It is interesting, the timing and the synopsis you just gave of that, because it does basically mirror the reasons why they're being banned in, in Italy. Um, I could also see OpenAI's frustration because there's a decent chance they're doing more than other organizations to protect this stuff. Um, where if you're them and they say, well, what about these open models? Like they have no guardrails. And I, so I think the way Sam Altman is positioned and Greg Brockman, you know, the, was, I think Greg's the COO, um, or yeah, COO, maybe uh, a co-founder of OpenAI, is that they're going to do everything in their power to try and do this safely. But these other models are going to come out that don't have the guardrails in place that they have. And so I feel like the challenge in Italy and other countries that want to take this to open AI, that's just the head of the snake. Like there, there's all these other models that are going to be out there and you're going to be able to get more dangerous models and, and customize them and fine tune them. And so I just don't know that it's going to stop the problem. Um, but I, I mean, I think at the end of the day, I think it's good that they're being held to a high standard. I think it's essential that other major technology players are held to a high standard um, of what these models are capable of doing. But the reality is this isn't going to slow down. Other models are going to be out there. And as a society, we, we just have to bring these conversations to the forefront. And I think at an individual company level, be doing everything possible to ensure the tools you're using are going to be used in a responsible way. Um, because I do think for a long time, looking forward, it's going to come down to individual corporations and individuals and how they choose to use these tools, because they're not, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to stay gone. Again, ChatGPT may be gone in Italy, doesn't mean there aren't other ways, other models that can be used. That makes a lot of sense. So before we dive into a couple of quick rapid fire topics, our last big topic I want to cover today is about the limitations of chat GPT detectors. So according to a new article in the Washington Post, a company called Turnitin, which is a popular education software tool, is activating a new AI writing detection feature in its uh, education software to, uh, that is rolling out to more than 10,000 secondary and higher education institutions. So basically they're a plagiarism detector and they're now including AI writing detection in the tool. Now, there's a problem here. The tool doesn't work as a reliable way to detect AI-generated content. The latest from the Post and some of their experiments shows that the tool is not reliable. It actually fails multiple times to detect adequately what is AI-written, what is human-generated. Sometimes it fails outright. Other times it misses parts of the text and miscategorizes them. The latest research has shown they're not reliable, and it actually does seem like the chief product officer of Turnitin appears to know this too. And he was quoted as saying, our job is to create directionally correct information for the teacher to prompt a conversation. I'm confident enough to put it out in the market as long as we're continuing to educate educators on how to use the data. So the issue here being that the company appears to be hedging how well uh, its software can detect AI writing, whereas teachers, educators, and parents may be 
taking them at face value and assuming that this is accurate 99% of the time. Now, Paul, I know this resonated for you. You wrote a LinkedIn post about this software, citing some of the problems with this approach. Could you walk us through maybe a little more of your thinking here? Yeah, I, I think it's a terrible idea. So the, my, my basic takeaway is we know from the latest research, these things do not work that yes, it can with some level of accuracy, maybe it's 50%, 70%, whatever it is, predict that something was written by AI. Is that good enough to fail a student and affect their career and their reputation and their life? No, it's absolutely not. So we're putting the power to make that decision in the hands of an untrained teacher. So unproven technology in the hands of untrained teachers. We're all of a sudden expecting teachers to become experts in large language models. So they know the validity of some score that says a student may have cheated if we're going to consider using AI cheating now. So the problem here actually is twofold. One, schools haven't caught up yet to even have a point of view on whether or not students should be using AI. And if so, how? Now, there's some individual teachers, you know, who are doing incredible work to not only embrace this technology, but to infuse it into the classroom and use it as a teaching guide and an assistant and to show them how the technology works. Like amazing, kudos to all the teachers, professors who are doing that. But that is uh, the exception, not the rule. So for the most part, school systems, teachers, administrators have no idea whether or not they should be encouraging the use of these things, how to integrate them in the classroom. And now we all of a sudden have a score that's telling a teacher, maybe a student cheated on this. Well, who's the arbitrator to figure that out, whether they did or not? So if the student gets to make, or if the teacher gets to make the judgment call that this student cheated, and there's no way for that student to challenge that decision, now all of a sudden the student's at the mercy. And how does bias not fall into this? So now you start like the teacher has to like prejudge this person, someone who's likely to cheat. And, you know, there's all these, it's just so rife with problem. And yet the tech is out there. Like they released this on, what was it? April 4th, just like turn the feature on. So now mm. all these teachers are getting this score. Like, oh yeah, this person might've cheated 20% chance, 80% chance. What is the teacher supposed to do with that information? So I just feel like this is, it, it's so, it's just the wrong time to do this. Like the whole idea of we'll educate educators. Okay, well, how about we educate educators first? Mm. Well, we have real conversations where you roll this out on a scaled basis, where you go in and explain what a language model is and why these things make stuff up and why the score may be completely inaccurate and how directionally correct isn't sufficient to fail a student. So, and, and the pro, like I, I had problems with this beforehand, but it just so happened that I'm, I'm on the board of directors for junior achievement. And so I was teaching a class that week to students, high school students. And the first question I got was from a student who said, he got a 50 out of 50 on an essay. And then a week later, the teacher came back and told me he had a zero out of 50 because the teacher believed he had used an AI writing tool to do the assignment. And the kid swore he didn't. I'm not saying the kid did or didn't, but that was it. And the kid said, well, that's, I didn't. Like, I, I don't agree. And you said, there's nothing you can do. You have a zero out of 50. So this, this is a real life thing. And so now the teacher's going to have these scoring systems to tell them this. Mm -hmm. So I just think it's such a failure of, just because we can doesn't be, mean we should. Just because we can have AI writing detection tools does not mean that they should be put in the hands of people that make decisions around people's futures because of it. So, yeah, I, I mean, you can tell I'm a little bit passionate <laughs> about this topic, but I'm just like, 
there's so many opportunities in education to infuse AI and the fact that this is what we're having to talk about rather than all the positives that could be happening. Um, it's just a shame. And I, I hope that this backfires like really fast so that we can pull this technology back and have a real conversation about whether or not it should even be in schools right now. I was and going again, to... I don't know, turn it in. Like, I don't know anybody there. If anybody turn in a hat, like listen to this podcast and has point of view, we should understand. And maybe there's some missing information here, but it was a pretty thorough article from the Washington post. Mm. Um, so I, I'm certainly open to hearing alternatives, but I just feel like there needs to be more dialogue around this kind of stuff before we just turn it loose on schools. Is there any way here, in your opinion, to put the genie back in the bottle? Just, I mean, do you, is there a chance that schools will realize this is an awful idea and stop using the technology? Or is it more of an, we need to be more aware and educated moving forward now that we're stuck with this approach? Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure the extent to which Turnitin is actually adopted with, uh, you know, at each individual teacher level. Like mm -hmm. if it's, if it's truly used as like an authoritative source. So we'd probably have to do a little more homework on, you know, what the utilization rates are going to be of this feature. You may have a bunch of people who are just like, I don't know, like I'm not going to use it. I don't understand what it's saying. And others may just rely on it. So if they, if they trust it as a plagiarism detection tool and it's done it confidently, then I assume whatever that software company puts out, you're going to believe it's a, a truly predictive score. And I thought I saw something to the effect of like, it's accurate, like 98% of the time, according to mm. them. But, you know, in the 16 examples, the Washington Post gave it sure was nowhere close to 98%. And I've yet to see a research paper that says any AI detection tool can get close to 98%. So, and again, like the thing you have to keep in mind is this is a race, like just be, even if it, even if it came out Tuesday and it was 98% accurate, there's a chance 30 days from now be 50% accurate. Because there's ways to mask the AI created content. So it, it doesn't come across as though AI created it. So if the game is, I'm going to use AI, like I'm going to be, I'm a student and I know I'm going to get in trouble if I use the technology available to me to write my essay. Hmm. I'll just find a way to mask the fact that I used it. I'll go get some other app that then does an overlay of what I create to mask it so that it can't be detected by Turnitin software. Like, do we really want to play that? Encourage kids to find more creative ways to cheat. That's basically what this is doing because this is never going to be foolproof. And so you're never, you're not going to get hundred percent accuracy. So why, why even play this game? Like I, it just, it seems like just the wrong thing we should be doing. We should be focusing on the good this can do as a teaching aid and a personalized teaching assistant for students and ways to enrich education with it, not teaching them to game the system with more advanced technology. Gotcha. So. Diving into a couple rapid fire topics here. First up, we have some great Twitter commentary from Jan LeCun, who we talk about quite often on this podcast. The chief mentioned AI earlier is our guy, our meta guy. <laughs> yeah, he is the chief AI scientist at Meta. For people who don't know the uh, history of AI, he is also essentially one of the godfathers of modern AI based on his research over the last several decades. And he, we should also note, Related to what we're about to talk about, he has pretty vocally come out against um, some of the rhetoric around the open letter for AI, pausing AI research about some of the more uh, extreme views around how unsafe AI may be. And he often tries to talk about artificial intelligence from much more of an engineering perspective rather than 
some of the other commentary and color out there. And he was responding on Twitter to an NPR story that talked about some of the nuances of chatbots and AI being used in the medical field. And he offered us some really, really good reminders about large language models. He said, repeat after me, one, current autoregressive LLMs, large language models, are very useful as writing aids. Yes, even for medical reports, which are referenced in the NPR article. Two, they are not reliable as factual information sources. And three, writing assistance is like driving assistance. Your hands must remain on the keyboard slash wheel at all times. Now, Paul, we just had our AI for Writers Summit where we talked about a lot of the ins and outs of what to think about and consider when using these tools. What did you think of uh, Jan's reminder here in commentary? Yeah, it just echoed exactly what we talked about at the Writers Summit. These things are writing assistance, not replacements. And I just... I think that the idea of the the analogy of the driving assistance is a good one. Like even if you have autopilot on in a Tesla, you still got to keep your hands on the wheel. So this whole idea that we are not trying to intelligently automate away writers and these language models are not capable of intelligently automating away writing jobs. They You have to have the human in the loop. They make stuff up. They hallucinate. They have no idea what facts are. And even at the bottom of chat, GPT is like may get people places facts wrong because it doesn't know anything. It's making predictions about words. So I just, there's so much misunderstanding of what these things are capable of. And I just thought that was a very concise three points of it is a writing aid. It is not reliable on facts <laughs> and human has to stay in the loop. Like those three things are really, really good to rem re remind people where we're at with language models today. And in Jan's opinion, where we will remain with language models, he mm -hmm. believes there's, we'll get into this another time, but he doesn't <laughs> believe language models are the path to true general intelligence, which will, again, deeper dive another time, not a rapid player topic. <laughs> so good, just good to remind folks too, that there isn't one answer or perspective in AI among even the most expert people in the field. I mean, as we hear all this commentary about banning AI, banning ChatGPT, the open letter, just because Elon Musk signs the letter doesn't mean every AI researcher actually agrees. People like Jan Lacoon take a pretty serious uh, opposing view to a lot of these things. So there's conversation, there's debate, and there's disagreement. Which is good. And that's like we always say on the show, part of our role is to bring you the information so you can form your own perspective. Like our point of view on stuff doesn't have to be your point of view and oftentimes shouldn't be your point of view. It's surfacing really important topics for you to go do your own work on. And then you need to, you need to find a collection of opinions. It's like anything else in life. You have to find a collection of perspectives and then you have to synthesize those perspectives and figure out what your point of view is yourself. And yeah, like Yashua Bengio was one of the, the leading co-signers on that letter. Well, Yashua, Yashua and Jan won the Turing Award together with Jeff Hinton. Mm. Like, so yes, there are even the, the, the most accomplished AI researchers in human history can disagree on the path forward, and they often do. And that's healthy. Like, I, I actually, like, I like the fact that we don't all have this echo chamber of like, this is exactly how it needs to happen. Absolutely. So last but not least, we want to give a nod to the 2023 AI index report. The AI index is something that's being put out regularly by the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. And 
Basically, they work with a number of different organizations to track the progress of AI year over year across many, many different areas of development. So we won't you know, go through every single finding here, but they are finding uh, things like industry is actually starting to take over releasing the most advanced machine learning models. In the past, since about 2014, those were actually being released by academia. So there's definitely a major shift in the market here. They've also cited things like year-over-year -year improvement on many AI benchmarks actually continues to be marginal. They also found that the number of AI incidents and controversies has increased 26-fold since 2012. So there's tons of great examples, data, and anecdotes in the report. Definitely check it out. We'll link to it in the show notes. Paul, did you have any initial feelings about the report and some of the things it found? No, I mean, we love the organization. We feature them in our marketing artificial intelligence book. So it's a great organization to follow on Twitter, a great organization to follow their resources. Um, they do an amazing, very thorough job. There was nothing like as someone who's kind of followed the space and read the previous reports, there was nothing to me that jumped. I was like, oh, wow, I didn't expect that. Like a lot of this is kind of recapping. But again, if you have, if you're newer to this space and you want to understand kind of the context of what's going on and some of the bigger pictures, even if you just read the top 10 takeaways at the front of the report, mm. it'll give you a nice summary of kind of this, in a way, the state of AI, um, so yeah, great organization, always a great report. I, I didn't personally take away a ton of like aha moments, but that, that doesn't mean it's not a really valuable thing to at minimum skim through. And if you find interesting areas like uh, the education angle or the job impact angle, whatever, dive into it and read that section. There's tons of information and charts in it. Awesome. Well, Paul, as always, thank you for the insight and uh, for breaking down the world of AI this week for us and for our listeners. Um, Appreciate your time and your insights. Thank you, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Marketing AI Show. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're ready to continue your learning, head over to marketingaiinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, check out our free monthly webinars, and explore dozens of online courses and professional certifications. Until next time, stay curious and explore AI. Thank you.